The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, April the 8th, and you are very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are our features writers, Jennifer O'Connell and Patrick Frayne, who have already done some great work on the impact of the coronavirus pandemic and the shutdown on individuals and communities right across the country. Uh, And they're continuing that good work this week. Uh, But first, I want to discuss the fact that yesterday evening, the Minister for Health, uh, Simon Harris, um, put into force the regulations which had been passed by the Dáil and the Channeled and signed by the President last week, giving additional powers to the Gardaí to enforce uh, restricted movement and quarantining people who refuse to stay within certain places. It's incredibly Dacronian legislation. Uh, it was supported really by the uh, by the whole political establishment. Uh, it took a week or so for it to be put into place. Uh, it seems to me, Jennifer, that uh, the timing is significant that they waited, Simon Harris waited until yesterday, Tuesday evening. There is a bank holiday approaching. I don't know what the hell a bank holiday means for most people this week, but the weather is good. Uh, Just a slight, you know, tightening of the screws in advance of all that. Yeah, and you know, I think my reaction to, to those powers is is well, I'm concerned about them. I'm also though concerned about, um, like you say, we're coming into Easter weekend. The weather has been good. Um, my parents live in a seaside village where people from Dublin kind of tend to descend in their hordes. We've had a very in this part of the country in the southeast, we've had a very low number of coronavirus infections. So, and it would be nice to keep it that way. So, on the one hand, I kind of I see where they're coming from. You know, I do worry a little bit about people's uh, staying power. I was I was in my local park here yesterday with the kids at lunch time and there were a lot of people out which I haven't seen all along there was people playing soccer there was a group of teenagers in the skate park um, and there was around six families in the playground so I think people are getting to the stage where their their patience is beginning to wear a bit thin and what are we three weeks into it now and uh, so I think you know these these powers were timed very carefully to kind of come in at that moment Um, but I do worry about the extent of them I agree with you I think they're very draconian and I think once you give those kind of powers, it's, it's hard to, to take them back. So, you know, I, I think we, we, in a way, they rely on pitting us against the rule flouters. And I worry, you know, as a society about the long term implications of that, uh, what that'll mean for us as we come out the other side of this, that we're kind of, we're now almost creating these divisions that haven't been there. We're, we're putting a division in where there's only been solidarity so far. So, you know, I kind of, I wonder what that will mean and how, once you've unleashed something like that, how do you put it back inside the box? There, there's a lot of psychology in this, Patrick, isn't there? I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, I don't think we're going to know until after this whole thing is over what sort of discussions took place in government circles and state circles about the best way to roll out these things and the timing of them and the way that they should be presented. We do know that in the United Kingdom from the very start, there was great scepticism about the ability of the state to keep a lockdown going for any great length of time. There seems to be less scepticism about that here, but there is this kind of ratcheting up process and Presumably this was all timed or planned out planned out from the very start in the expectation, really, that it would be required as people started to chafe at these restrictions. 
Like it's, I think it's very interesting because it's, um, we're very consensus based in the way we do things in this country. And I think the last two referendums kind of consolidated that. Like we don't go for, generally don't go for a, a divisive kind of argument about these things. And my experience out and about talking to people when I was out, I was out yesterday at a Tesco talking to both punters and staff for an article that's this weekend. And I was out at the, last week with a postman and we each time socially distanced, I spoke to a, a lot of people and most people seem to agree on the approaches that are being taken. And most people are lar- like people are largely obeying the rules. So I think what Jen says is right. There's a danger that we pit all of those people against the handful of rule breakers. But at the same time, you don't want even more draconian rules put on the rest. You don't want them saying you can't leave your house, for example, just because there's a handful of people driving around the town and there's footage. I mean, there's there's a YouTube clip of a guy who's challenging the guards because there was no law like he was out and he was clearly from the Gemma authority camp he was going you can't you've the, what what law would you tell me to go home under and the guard is basically saying well there is no law and the guard has to allow him just drive on because at the moment there are some Egypts out there who don't who don't realize the nature of this crisis and don't realize um that these protections are in place for our own good. And even as I say that, I'm aware that when you say a draconian law is for your own good, that's slightly totalitarian and terrifying. But I also have faith and I've quite a lot of faith in this country at the moment. And I've quite a lot of faith in the fact that most of these decisions are being taken with an eye to what the public view is. And I don't think everything is necessarily the thin end of a totalitarian wedge. Um, I do think we should discuss it. I do think there should be an ongoing reference to the fact that this law is out of the ordinary and that this shouldn't become a norm in peacetime, as it were. I mean, the reality is, Jen, that that we haven't actually seen much evidence of people being arrested yet. Well, they didn't have the powers up until about 12 hours ago. But it remains to be seen if people are actually forcibly restrained in any way or whether really these regulations are used to reinforce the kind of group social pressures which, which have been the, you know, the main controlling factor up to now. Yeah, I think these powers, they're effective because they rely on public disapproval and they rely on people, you know, t- sort of quarantine shaming, for want of a better expression, other people. And I, I th- that that makes me very uneasy. And I worry, you know, we're really only at the beginning of this. We're only beginning to hopefully flatten the curve. We don't even know if that's the case because we're not testing widely enough to know. But, you know, I, I was talking to a friend over the weekend who lives in Italy and uh, they're on their fifth week there. And she said in the last week, the mood has really darkened. Um so people are like standing on their rooftops of their buildings, taking photographs and videoing other people on the street below and posting it in social media to kind of, you know, shame them and, and report them. Uh, this friend of mine is a parent of a single child who really hasn't been able to leave her apartment for five weeks because the child is too young to be left alone. At one point, she went out to the pharmacy. I think recently she needed some medicine um, and she was abused by people on the street, uh, you know, and in this country where they're they're renowned for their love of kids in front of her own little child. Um, an, an elderly man kind of gave her some abuse for being out of the apartment with a child. So, you know, I think that like that's the direction that we could be heading in if the crisis continues to exacerbate here. Um, and as the public mood phrase, and I think we've already seen some isolated incidents of that kind of public disapproval directed at children. We've seen people hoarding food. Um, and I think, you know, we're on the right side of that line. We're still on the side of sort of solidarity and that kind of very positive mood that we're all in this together. And it's all it's all optimistic and it's all very supportive. But I think 
a few things or, you know, a few very small incidents could potentially tip us over into the other side and we could end up with a little bit more unrest like we're starting to see emerging in Italy. And that could be, you know, it could be as dramatic as the health system collapsing under the weight of um, of, of the cases or it could be people losing trust in the government. It could be that we stop believing them, that we feel they're not being transparent enough. Or it could be that the Guardi are just seen to use their powers too widely. So I think I think everybody is very aware in government and, and here that we're walking this very, very delicate tightrope at the moment. And we're going to have to stay on that tightrope for weeks to come yet. Like there's no early exit uh, plan from from where we are now from the lockdown. And even if we are, you know, going in the right direction and even if the curve is being flattened. And, and I know some of the modelling that was published this week suggests that maybe we've already peaked here, which would be which would be fantastic. But there's still an awful long way to go before we resume any kind of normality. And in that time, a lot could happen. And and that's what makes me uneasy, this idea that these new powers have been brought in and that the power is not really the 2,000 euro fine or 2,500 euro fine, but it's actually the power to turn people on each other. But there is a problem, Patrick. If if thousands of people um, go down to the southeast where Jennifer is, pour out of Dublin and go down to the southeast um, or down to Connemara, um, Easter weekend is traditionally, I think, the biggest holiday weekend for um, for for the west of Ireland. And if even you know a, a percentage of the people who normally do that head down to their holiday homes, well, I mean that causes a medical potential medical problem in itself immediately and especially for the people down there causes all kinds of potential uh, social tensions and if it's not restrained or stopped in some way it sends a signal to everybody else which is why I, I think most people want the guards to have laws like this it could be proved completely wrong in the short term because i think most people my experience is that most people are being supportive and most people at for the past few weeks have been very obedient and you know there are dangers in that too like it was amazing um i was talking to people in the queue outside tesco and rush yesterday and it's amazing how quickly people get used to a thing like some people were talking about how they like shopping like this because they once you're in the store it's actually really calm and there's not that many people around and it's quite a nice way to shop i imagine so there's kind of there's kind of a weird, uh, on the one hand, you can say it's that people care about each other and everyone I have spoken to has said, this is not about me. This is about protecting kind of my more vulnerable family members and my more vulnerable neighbours. And so they are OK with these kinds of laws for that reason. Um, and as long as we keep it in that context and as long as we continually discuss the dangers of this tipping over into a more totalitarian norm, um, I think it's okay, and I think most people agree with it. I do think you want the guards to be able to stop the few cases, and I do think it's a few cases of people who could be spreading the disease around the country because they either don't understand what they're doing or because they just don't care. Um, And I think I was listening to, I can't even remember his name, but he was an academic on Brendan O'Connor a few weeks ago who said that when they model this sort of stuff, they reckon 15 to 20% of people break the rules. And... Uh, most people, 80% of people are pro-social and they do the things that they think are good for society and 15 to 20% will always strain at the bit. And at times like this, I suppose you do need, um, you do need society. And I kind of view the guards as an arm of society at their best to have control over these things. 
I do wonder, Jennifer, um, reading Fintan O'Toole's Tuesday column yesterday, <clears throat> and he was talking about how the state, which has a very bad record in, in some things over the years, has traditionally had a pretty good record in, in dealing with immediate crises. Uh, and I think that's probably true. And there is a sort of coming together uh, that comes in a in, in a small country like this. And there is an element of social cohesion that you might not get in other countries. But looking at Italy, and you you mentioned Italy, and there, did see, there does seem to be uh, increasing resistance to some of the measures particularly in the in the south of the country and without uh, being too cliched about the, the nature of Italian politics, there is a general perception that I think there was an old uh, motto about traffic lights in Italy that in the north there are an instruction in the area around Rome there are a suggestion and in the south there are a decoration and there is certainly a kind of a, a more ambiguous relationship with the arms of the state, let's put it that way in Italy and that's true in all societies to some extent and there are people who are alienated from the state, who are alienated from the police and particularly in certain urban areas um, and that sort of thing can manifest itself uh, as well at a moment like this. Yeah, I mean, we saw it during um, during the, the Beast from the East when there was like looting um, of supermarkets. They're not on a very big scale here. But I do think, um, you know, when you have this sort of perfect storm of, of pressures where you have people who've been put into a very close confinement with family members who maybe they wouldn't ordinarily choose to spend those large quantities of time with, where they've had their, their source of, um, of income taken away from them, where where uh, they've been, they've essentially had their freedom removed. Where things, you know, what's so extraordinary about this to me is that things that two months ago we would have thought were were really great and healthy. You know, seeing a group of teenagers out playing basketball together at seven o'clock in an evening, we would have been, you know, really approving of that and thought that it was fantastic that they weren't on their phones. Now we're telling those same kids that they're, you know, they're breaking the law and they could face up to six months in jail and, and a fine of two thousand five hundred euros. You know, so we've we've gone through this period of immense psychological adjustment and we've we've moved the goalposts for ourselves in such a dramatic way. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I think that it, it's a really it's a really interesting psychological moment and and it's it's a perfect storm i think for some kind of some kind of of difficulty i i, I think it'll be very um it's hard to imagine that we'll get through this without any period of uh, rejection of what's being foisted upon us or any period of any kind of discontent any kind of public discontent i think we've been really lucky so far and i'm sure that the government has an eye on that as they you know they manage the timing of these measures and they manage the timing of when we can start to get back to normal society some of it will be purely based on health and i think most of the decisions we've taken to date have been purely purely from a public health perspective but i think at some point they're going to have to start thinking about a you know a, a, a social order and a, a, a societal perspective as well and obviously the business and the, and the economic imperative will have to come in as well so as we move through the curve they're going to take different considerations and eventually the public health questions may start to take second place to some of the other questions about how long can can society continue this and actually one thing i'd like to add if, if it's okay is like the one thing i i am always cautious of when there are new kind of guard laws and, and, and new regulations under which they operate is that those things aren't always um, administered equally. So you get in certain neighbourhoods that can be used as a stick to beat people with. Um, if it's And this already happens. Like There's a parts of inner city Dublin where um, kids are typically um, treated quite badly by police. So um, I am always cautious uh, about how these laws are administered because it doesn't always happen in an equitable way. Um, can we look at the path ahead? I'm a bit torn, Jennifer. You had a big piece in the Irish Times on Saturday 
headlined uh, Restarting Ireland, talking to a to a range of people about you know what happens next or what happens when we get past this peak. And reading that and thinking over the last few days, I am a bit torn because part of me is going, we need that. We need we need to have some picture painted for us of the future. I mean, I think that's a very important part of the human condition. We can't just kind of blindly remain in this state with no for for the next three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, however many weeks it may be, with no vision of of what happens next. But there also seems to me to be a danger. And the danger is that we're starting to hear, as you said this week, that we may be at the peak or have passed the peak. And when people hear that, they start relaxing their defences, they start behaving in a different kind of a way. And getting the balance right between those two things seems extremely difficult. It's a huge challenge. And I think people, you know, they really do want even some kind of rough guidance as to where we are on this roadmap and when we'll come out the other side. And the reality is that it's impossible for us to give because, you know, even if we could afford to be optimistic about the figures and and they do look good, the, the reality is that we're not testing yet on a wide enough scale to really know if we've if we flattened the curve or to really know the extent of, of the problem here. And yes, like some of the modelling suggests that we might have peaked already. Um, but, you know, again, we, we, it's just I think it's too early to say. But like, let's say that we have passed the peak of the curve and that social distancing has actually worked and uh, the cases will start to subside by by early summer. After that, I think we will really be looking for some kind of guidance as to when restarting Ireland will rebegin and when we can get back to normal. And the big thing for me in writing that piece um, and, the, and the heading was restarting Ireland is like there's no one answer and there's not going to be one moment when somebody comes into the room and flicks back on the light switch and we can all go back to work and we can all go back out to the pub and we can all go see our parents again. That's not going to happen. It's going to be more, as I said in the article, it's going to be more of the slow turning up of a dimmer switch. Um, or as Stephen Kinsella put it to me, it's it's going to be a transition. We have to start stop talking about restarting normality and we have to talk about when we transition. Um, and, you know, that we're really at like the very, very first steps of, of that because we haven't even begun what will be a really long phased return to normality. But I think what we will see um, at some point, probably over the next month, is that some jobs that can't be done remotely may be restarted people may be allowed to go back to work in a very small scale uh, phased basis so you might see for example some construction sites reopening to a small degree because we do need house building to continue I mean the, the problems that we had the the homeless crisis uh, that was there before COVID-19 is going to be there after um, so you know we, we need to see some of that uh, they're probably then over the summer we might start to open up more of society most people that I spoke to even you know you would know more about this than me but in the arts world are not really looking at um, events in, in arts returning best case scenario till maybe August or, or September beyond um, so you know when we talk about a return to normality I think really we could be talking about the end of the year or even the beginning of next year before all of the things that we regarded as as normal are back and before we're free to travel and before we're free to go to concerts and that kind of thing. So in a way, and, and this point was made to me in the article by Susan Hayes Cullerton, who's who's a positive um, economist. She said it's, it's actually really unhelpful to use language like a return to normality because people's expectations are, are going to be crushed because there isn't going to be um, an overnight return to normality. But even when we've got through kind of those initial phases and, and we're going back to work, um, you know, what is normality then and, and what kind of society will we want? And I think that this crisis has shown us what's possible in a really positive sense and has shown us the kind of society that we could have and has shown us ways that actually, you know, we can turn, we, our, our working lives can be overturned, our health systems can be overturned, um, our social welfare system can work in a much more frictionless way than we ever would have imagined. So I think there's going to be a lot of things that we got during this crisis that we might be reluctant to let go of um, in the end. 
And after that, we're going to be left with, well, you know, if we do want to hold on to some of those things, you know, if we like having um, a better, more functioning social welfare system and we like having a single tier health system and we like having potentially subsidised childcare for for healthcare workers, which seems to be something that's that's under discussion now, we don't want to give those things up, then, you know, how do we pay for them? And that's going to be the, the next question, I think, that we're all going to be asking um, even before we come out of the crisis, even before we're kind of at the beginning phases of the return to normality. We're going to have to start asking ourselves, what do we want to hold on to? Um, and, you know, whatever we want to hold on to, how are we going to pay for it? And those are all political questions, Patrick. This is a, a politics podcast. We gave our political correspondents a day off today, but in their absence, um, I've had you know discussions with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray and Fia Kelly about the subject of government formation over the last over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I thought a very interesting column by Cathy Sheridan uh, today, which I found um, really quite convincing and it's a different position say from from Pat's one which is that it's crazy to try and form a multi-party coalition government with a program or a plan for several years at this particular moment and that we'd be better off if not the national government which has definitely been shot down as proposed by the Green Party it appears just to support the current lot until we get to the end of this summer because they seem to be doing an okay job and they seem to have the support of everybody in the same way as Keir Starmer the new Labour leader in the United Kingdom has said he's going to support the British government um, for the next few months because that's all that needs to be done. Um, I think there's some uh, validity in that. I think what's happening at the moment is the society and the people and the kind of group consciousness to some degree is being kind of completely rewired because we're looking around at the world with very, very new eyes. Everyone is. And collectively, it's hard to see how that's going to end. It's hard to see where that's going to end up. Like there's people positing, I have been one of them, that um, this leads to, I mean, we're in a kind of crisis socialism at the moment. People are, it's very, very hard at this moment in time for anyone to see themselves as entirely self-made in that kind of old right-wing capitalist model because you look around and you see how dependent we all are on all the little bits of society, the the postmen and postwomen and the people working in the shops and the people working in the supply chains. And and this is not a a unique perspective I have here. Lots of people are just pointing out how all of these things have been undervalued in society. And all of these people are doing their jobs above and beyond what they're usually called to do, usually for quite low wages and possibly for lower wages as this kind of crisis continues. So the the people that um, the people governing this country are governing are kind of in a process of, while we're all cocooning, we might come out the other end a completely different animal. We might have a completely different perspective on the world. And it's very, very hard to see, like, definitely we're going to end up wanting a bigger state. And for a long time, there's been an argument in the opposite direction, because now we see that when a crisis happens, you need a strong state. You need a really, really strong healthcare system. You need a strong child uh, care system things that we don't necessarily have in this country, um, things that people have been arguing about for a very long time. But I think you're going to find more consensus about the solutions now than you had in the past. Um, I think the the other question then is there will probably need to be tax hikes. So how long our crisis socialism lasts in the face of tax hikes is another question. And I think if you were predicting like where the Irish people would be on that kind of left-right spectrum in another kind of year, it would be very, very difficult. And consequently, it's very, very difficult to look at a government and say who, who would be the most appropriate parties in there. 
Okay, I, I, I'll come to you in a second, that, Jen, but I just want to push you on one point on that, um, Patrick, because I prefer to think of myself as a sceptic rather than a cynic, and I'm a little bit sceptical um, about some of that, partly because the majority of the, the parties of the left, um, certainly Sinn Féin, People Before Profit, Solidarity, all the parties who, who, which locate themselves most firmly on the left, um, uh, are in favour of tax hikes, and they're in favour of tax hikes for the most wealthy in society or the top 20% of society, which it's quite possible to support. But you do the maths on this, and you need, in addition to that, you also need to have a broader tax base too. And you need to tax people who traditionally are not taxed very much in this country at all. And we've seen resistance to things like property tax, various other kinds of charges, uh, USC, um, all things which the parties of the left, very unusually in Ireland, uh, have opposed. So there are real tricky political questions uh, for the parties of the left, for whom this should be a great opportunity. I, I agree completely. And I, I've never subscribed to the populist left that says that it's all about what what the 1% are doing, because it just basically allows an awful lot of people who are quite comfortable to opt out of any tax hikes whatsoever. Um, I think what you see in Ireland is, and actually what you see everywhere, but Ireland is much more sensitive to it, is that where the centre is changes and everyone just flocks around where that new centre is. One of the things, one of the uh, parts of the puzzle that's definitely happening is uh, there's an increasing understanding and respect for the services we need in this country. The, the second question that is more controversial, and you're right, like it, it does raise questions about where we're going to go is how you fund that and where the taxes come from. And the parties of the left have been resistant to extra taxes for ordinary people. And whereas I believe in way more taxes and way more progressive taxes for richer people myself, I also think it's very, very hard to see that kind of uh, Scandinavian model that people on the left here subscribe to without higher taxes for everybody. Um, And that's going to be a challenge ahead. So on the one hand, you've got a... You've got a population who are changing their uh, vision for what sort of services Irish government should be providing. The second question is how that gets paid for, particularly in the other side of a crisis when the country has less money. And that's where this could divert off into all sorts of other scarier political directions for me. I mean, Jennifer, you talk to a range of people from economists and political analysts to people involved in industry and all, all different kinds about this. Um is my scepticism about that we're going to come out of this with a national health service and universal childcare uh, and all that, all that, all that good stuff? Uh, is my scepticism justified at all? Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think your scepticism is justified because I think here, you know, we're very quick to talk about uh, the things that we want. We're less, we're less quick to engage in meaningful discussions about how you can pay for them, and you know, meaningful discussion about how you can pay for the kind of social democratic system that we seem to want. It has to be more than just tax Apple and tax the rich. You know, that's that's not an answer. Um, and if you look at the Scandinavian countries that we often do look to, um, you know, people across all levels of income pay higher tax than than they do uh, here. You know, people on, on lower incomes here pay significantly less tax than they, they do in in the Scandinavian countries. So, you know, I think I think you're right to be sceptical because I think we will come out of this and there will be certain fundamental truths that I think we will all have to accept, which is that you can't go on paying a frontline uh, nurse or uh, a childcare worker, you know, a fraction, a small fraction of what you pay somebody whose job is effectively to move money around in the economy. I just don't think that that's going to wash. I don't think that people will wear that. Uh, Equally, though, I think while we want this social democratic system, I think 
we can't tell people that we've gone through this period where, you know, potentially many of us have lost somebody, you know, where we faced national bereavement uh, on a large scale, where we've had our freedom temporarily suspended, where, you know, many of us have lost our livelihood or, you know, part of our household income. You can't put people through all that and then at the end of it, reward them with an austerity budget, you know, to pay for the kind of better society that they want. So I think it's going to be hugely challenging question for the next government, uh, whoever that government might be. And I think the party of the, of the left, that's why we need their voices um, and we need them to have an input into policy making because, you know, we, we've sort of we're spending this time kind of compiling a shopping list of the ways that we would like society to be better. And I think that's great. That's that's really um, healthy and helpful. But the reality is that a better society is, is going to have to be paid for and we're all going to have to, to pay for it. You know, it, it isn't it is not an answer to say that this can be done through Apple taxes, for example. So I think we've got some really tough decisions. Once we get through this period of tough decisions, we've got a whole other set of, of tough decisions. You know, once we get through the kind of health curve, then we're faced into the economy curve and the society curve. Um, and we're all going to have to continue, I think, probably making sacrifices that, that we haven't imagined so far, if we want that kind of society. Otherwise, maybe um, your scepticism will, will pay off and we'll come out the other side. We'll look at the menu of things that people want. We'll look at the shopping list and we'll go, do you know what? Let's leave things as they were. We were fine as we were. So I hope that's not what happens. Uh, but I think I think that, you know, there's a, there's a fair chance, like you say, when we've seen things like like how the water tax uh, went, the water tax argument went, like it is very difficult to to make um, to make the case for wider taxes. Uh, on the other hand, the property tax came in with an awful lot less. Uh, there was an awful lot less opposition. It was managed much better. It was it was seen as more equitable. I'm not really sure why, uh, but it was seen as as a more equitable tax, I suppose, because it was more progressive. Um, but there was very little opposition to that when it came in. So. There are probably ways that we can, you know, raise the, the the funds that would be needed to to pay for some of the things that we would like to see, you know, like healthcare workers rewarded better, childcare people in all of those caring careers. We we need to stop treating them like as if they're kind of um, a vocation or something that people do because they they love it and they don't really care about the money. I think we need to recognise the people who do those kind of really difficult, really demanding, really important jobs, and not just nurses and childcare workers. Like Patrick said, people who've kept the economy going on on the retail side of things, people who are delivering our post uh, on post have done have done incredible. I know Patrick's been writing about this, but on post have done um, incredibly. They've gone way above and beyond what any of us would ever have imagined they would need to do. But I think we need to, to recognise that a lot of those public sector workers uh, and and people who are working in, in private childcare have been under rewarded. Um, so, you know, we, there, there are certain things that we want and I think we need to decide what it is that we're prepared to pay for. What do we want enough that we are prepared to pay for? And this, Patrick, is all against the backdrop of, we shouldn't forget the fact that we know so little still about this virus and how it's likely to continue to affect us over the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, two years. Who knows what it is? Should it become endemic, you know, in the future beyond that? Uh, we, we hope for a vaccine. We're not going to see it till the summer of 20 or summer or winter of, of 2021. Uh, probably there are these huge questions floating around about um, how many asymptomatic cases are out there. We won't know the answer to that until we ramp up our, our testing enormously. And then the question of how we manage both legally and medically, you know, later outbreaks in smaller clusters and how those things, shutdowns might happen. All those things, it seems to me, are going to influence those sort of political discussions because um, the relationship of the state to the people is more important than it's been in a very, very long time and how that relationship is managed and how people think about it is going to influence how, how our politics changes. 
Yeah, well, I think any predictions any of us make, and we're, we're all going to make them as journalists over the next while, could make us look ridiculous in another year because we nobody predicted this was coming. Um, I was talking to people about the housing market in January around a table and we were making all sorts of wild predictions and nobody saw a pandemic that would have us all shut into our homes. Um, I think... One thing I'm pretty certain of, though, I'm making a, a wild prediction, is that this will have a massive changing effect on our society. Um, and it's worrying and it's scary because we're all living in this uncertainty. Um, but it's also something when I'm when I have spoken to people, there's a my experience of people out and about um, is that there's a huge amount of stoicism there and there's a huge amount of uh, community care and people caring about their neighbours and chatting to their neighbours. I think I've talked to more at a distance, <laughs> talked to more neighbours, older people sitting out in their in their doorways, kind of I've chatted to people I've never even seen in the neighbourhood before. So there's all these, I mean, I hate the silver linings thing, but there's all these strange ways in which um, society I feel is slightly rewiring itself. The, some of the good things in Irish society are bedding in. Um, I can't make any big predictions, but um, I do feel like at this moment in time, like I'm worried about, I, I know I sound like a crazed idealist, um, but I'm, I'm sceptical too. I'm aware that when things like this have happened historically in the past, there have been terrible outcomes and there have been terrible political ramifications. Um, but I take a lot of hope from the fact that most of the people I meet when I'm out as a journalist um, are kind and they're being kind to each other and they're being quite stoical about the situation. They're not booking against anything. Um, so that's, yeah. And Jennifer, you, <laughs> you, like Patrick, are out sort of taking, taking the temperature, so to speak, of the, of the population all the time. Do you bring with you, there's a, there's a letter from our managing director that, uh, that we can print off if we want to go out and need to go out and do our jobs uh, for a presentation to the guards if needed. Do you bring that letter with you? I bring it with me. It's it's in my car, and I've got the uh, the press uh, note as well on Irish Times headed note paper on the dashboard of my car for doing my sort of uh, socially distant temperature taking. I completely agree with what Patrick says. I I do think that people are showing remarkable forbearance, and they're showing huge community solidarity. And and one of my very idealistic hopes, uh, as somebody who lives outside of Dublin in a part of of Ireland in Waterford, which has uh, you know really only begun in the last couple of years to recover from the recession, and now is plunged back in. To another recession and a lot of the predictions that people made when I spoke to them for that restarting Ireland piece was that you know a lot when something like this happens a lot of the companies that close down and the jobs that are lost just don't come back so I walk around uh, Waterford now I'm doing a piece this week uh, which will be in on Saturday on kind of an anatomy of one street uh, in a crisis and what's happening to all behind all those shuttered down shops what's happening to the businesses there um, because you know those people are still there but you know when you walk around and you see all the signs saying kind of uh, you know closed awaiting further uh, news back back soon um closed in the interest of our the health and safety of our staff it's it's really incredibly poignant you know and I'm not a sentimental person normally I'm I'm much less soft than Patrick um <laughs> generally but I, I was I was genuinely really moved walking around the completely deserted town and just you know reading all those signs and, and thinking about all the lives uh, hanging in suspended animation on on the other side of them but one thing that uh, has given me a lot of hope this week doing that piece about uh, the the anatomy of a kind of a ghost street 
is that behind those shuttered up shops, there are still really entrepreneurial people. And more than ever before, they're talking to each other behind the scenes. They're busy on WhatsApp. They're calling each other. They're having Zoom meetings and they're figuring out, you know, what they're going to do uh, when they get out the other side of this. And they've been doing things like small gestures, but that I think are quite meaningful. They've been buying gift vouchers for each other's shops so that when the shops open, that they will have some customers. Um, they've been, you know, moving mountains behind the scenes to to try and stay in business. Those of them who are considered uh, essential workers, and some of them have been in record time have turned around a website and have started selling online, and just trying to keep going and trying to to be able to pay their suppliers and keep that element of of the business going. Uh, one person that I've interviewed is a butcher in a one hundred and eighty year old family business that sort of was was ticking along nicely and they've since the crisis began he's done things like he's he's you know found phone numbers for his customers if he hasn't seen them in a while his older customers so he'll he'll text somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody and gets a phone number uh, and then sends a text just going listen do you need anything do you, do you need anything from the shop and uh, they'll say oh god I didn't realize you were still doing deliveries and they'll say a few lamb chops and you know a bit of minced beef or whatever and he'll put it in the boot of his car and drive it up and and leave it on their their door so you know they're they're like it's partly to stay in business but it's partly out of a sense of community as well so I think that people who live in towns like this one where the town centre was in trouble and has been in trouble, um, I think we'll realise what it would be like if we were to lose that completely and what it would be like if I was to walk through uh, Sir John Roberts Square down in, in, in the centre of Waterford uh, in five years' time and most of the shops were still shuttered up. Um, and I think it's a bit of a wake-up call. So I do think that business communities might emerge stronger, sort of those local business communities. And I hope that people will realise uh, what they can contribute themselves just by spending money in their local area, by supporting Irish businesses when they can. Um, and we've seen some kind of innovative suggestions around how the government could even uh, supplement that and support that. Like our colleague Mark Paul had a clever idea of um, issuing a 12-month gift voucher for people that had to be spent locally um, and as a way of sort of putting cash into the economy and making sure that it was spent in, in the next 12 months. So that for me, I you know, what Patrick says about community solidarity, absolutely. And I also think the solidarity of the small business owners is something, um, and their their entrepreneurialism and their resilience and and the kind of the creative hoops that they're jumping through to to try and keep going and make sure that they're there on the other side of this that gives me hope as well. And along alongside that, you have the kind of the, the people you've been meeting this week for your piece this week, I think, who are in the supermarkets. We're really at the front line of keeping us all fed and in some kind of shape over the next while, and who have to go to work whether whether or not they want to, and probably have to deal with some of these, you know, some of these issues sometimes of people not observing social distancing in the way that in the way that you would hope and doing it in my experience with remarkable good cheer and fortitude yeah and they're very conscious of that um speaking to people like they were because i was asking they were telling me well actually i'm quite worried because you know i met a, an argentinian man who was on one of the checkouts and he had a full face mask and he had gloves and he was being a they were all being very, very careful. But, you know, he has a wife who's on a medication that suppresses her immune system. And he was talking about how so he has this letter and he's kind of he wants to show people and he's worried about that. But at the same time, he goes, but I know people are really down. So I just try and cheer them up when they're coming through. And this is like all over 
the place. There are people who are doing these things, kind of minor heroic behaviour that is helping other people, despite the fact that they themselves are anxious. And an awful lot of the people in the shop, like I met a young fellow who was, I guess he was in his late 20s, early 30s, who was like cleaning the baskets at the door. He used to work at the airport and he was kind of drafted in to do this. And, you know, he just said in a side, I said, are you on, where are you living? He says he's living with his parents because I can't afford to move out. So this is the reality that people have been talking about for a few years, that all these young people who um, who basically can't start their lives because they're not being paid enough to or to buy a house or to rent a house even um, are doing this very, very important work that's keeping us safe now. Um, and I think people are conscious of it. Like I, are they, everyone was also very keen to stress that there are most of the people who are breaking the rules are doing it without realising it. Um, this is what I'm being told, uh, that it's, you know, it's two women who are friendly and they just start to chat and they don't realise they're getting closer and closer until a shop assistant says, um, do you mind moving along? Um, so I'm not, I don't particularly buy the idea that there are lots and lots of rule breakers out there. In my neck of the woods, in Merino, I am, when I'm going out for walks, most, nearly everyone is socially distanced. Um, I think sometimes people are making assumptions, like Jennifer mentioned earlier, you know, about people with kids or, you know, sometimes you see, I mean, I was being judgmental myself. I was out for a walk the other day and I saw four young men all together and uh, they were in their 20s. And when I was passing, I realised that they were Brazilian. And then I thought about all of those places where people are heaped in on top of each other along the North Strand where I'm walking home, you know, so they could all well live in one room. And I could judge them from a distance going, oh, they're breaking the rules. But the four of them could be flatmates in a really, really cramped accommodation for all any of us know. So I, I'm also, as Jennifer was saying earlier, that we shouldn't be too judgmental. We shouldn't be jumping to conclusions either about things that we see. Everyone has their own story. I don't see anyone who's being an actual, I'm trying not to curse, but an actual baddie. I'm seeing some people who maybe aren't thinking about what they're doing, but that's getting less and less as, as it goes on. On that typically tolerant and uplifting note from Patrick, we'll leave it there. You can read both Patrick's and Jennifer's articles on those subjects in the weekend edition of the Irish Times and on irishtimes.com. But thanks, guys, for joining me today. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. And remember that if you do like what you're hearing, the best way to support this podcast is to subscribe to the Irish Times. Just go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, where you can sign up for the introductory price of one euro for the first month. And do remember also you can find our sister podcast, Confronting Coronavirus, in our existing worldview podcast feed that like this one is on apple podcasts on spotify on acast and on all the other major platforms and also at irishtimes.com slash podcast you can email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com but until the next time thanks very much indeed for listening